Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, and today we have a good one in store for you all today. We're going to talk a little bit about pelvises. We're going to talk a little bit about the operative treatment of pelvic fractures, and we're going to go a little bit into the history behind pelvic fractures. And joining us today, we have a repeat guest. This will be uh, Dr. Barrett Hawkins, uh, my co-resident, and to speak a little bit more about pelvic fractures and the history behind it and the operative treatment about it. We Sometimes we kind of touch a little bit on the operative fixation pathways. And at the end of this, we actually go into a uh, couple of cases and Dr. Uh, Dr. Chip Rout uh, talked a little bit more and kind of gave us his insight on a couple of pelvic cases. So if you have not been following on YouTube or subscribed to the YouTube channel, go ahead and do that. But a little bit more about Dr. Rout. He is one of the pioneers in pelvis and acetabular uh, work. He kind of spearheaded the development of safe percutaneous pelvic fixation techniques, um, relevant pelvic biomechanical research, as well as uh, dependable pelvic and acetabular imaging. Uh, he was one of the innovators for this kind of complex uh, surgical care for these complex acetabulum fractures. He's a big name, uh, one of the legends of orthopedics, uh, mentor to many. He, he helped, uh, he, he was the course instructor for the ortho course that Dr. Hawkins and I did when we were uh, interns. So it was really, truly a pleasure to have Dr. Rout on and you know we kind of talk so a little bit about a lot of different things and we again we go into the history of pelvic fractures and and the treatment of it so this is really a great episode again I really appreciate Dr. Rout for coming on and again for Dr. Hawkins coming on and talking about um, pelvises now if you have not please go and leave a review in iTunes as of right now, on June 6th, we have 85 reviews. We would try to get that to 100. 100 is our goal, and if we can do that by the end of the week, that would be awesome, and we could definitely use your help with that. So please go and leave us a review in iTunes. It takes 30 seconds. So without further ado, please enjoy our episode on pelvic fractures featuring Dr. Chip Rout. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Rout, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. So happy to have you on. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. And, and Dr. Barrett Hawkins, welcome back again. Um, this will be a second appearance on this on this podcast. So welcome back, Bear. Thank you, Dr. Cole. Dr. Rao, thank you for joining. Thank you. And, um, you know, we wanted to talk a little bit today about pelvises and um, how to fix them. I know this is your, your specialty, you know, you're world renowned and internationally known. And I know you've made a lot of strides in, you know, in the fixation of of pelvic fractures and how we look at pelvic and a lot of acetabular work as well. But before we get into it, we kind of like to start off asking a couple questions, just getting to know you a little bit better. Um, so first question I have is kind of the age old question, but you know, kind of what sparked your interest in trauma when you're looking at different specialties? What, what made you go towards trauma? Well, I loved, I loved everything in medical school. Loved orthopedics the most, so I went into orthopedics, and I, you know, I had a straight general surgery internship, and I loved that as well. 
And when I did orthopedics, I, I, I thought everything uh, was fantastic, but the first two years of my residency, we really didn't do any, any much fixation except maybe both bone form fractures. And, you know, it's pretty uh, rudimentary stuff. This was 1984, 85, and uh, ORIF of most things wasn't very popular. Um, in the middle of my residency, Mark Swinkowski moved to Vanderbilt and joined our faculty there. <clears throat> and Mark had uh, come uh, as a resident in Seattle and had to spend a year in Davos at the lab uh, for uh, experimental surgery in Davos. And he literally turned our medical center around 180 degrees and inside out and upside down and backwards and on fire. And I remember the first night I was on call with him, you know, we had an open femur fracture. And before Mark moved, uh, to Nashville, an open femur fracture was an irrigation and debridement whenever we could get a room. Uh, distal pelvic traction, balance, uh, it was balanced traction. The patient was in a hospital for eight weeks and uh, all that that implied in traction. And when Mark came, we did irrigation and debridement and, um, that night at 2 a.m. and uh, did a, an integrated reamed uh, locked femoral nail. The locking femoral nails were kind of new. And um, the guy went home about three days later. And, uh, you know, I was pretty much uh, hooked, boated, and gutted on orthopedic trauma at that day. It was like, um, it was, it was like crack, uh, I, I assume. <laughs> I was completely addicted to trauma. I had never seen a patient so positively impacted, especially after, you know, having a couple of years of just closed fracture management. So, um, it was a very simple decision when he, when I finished my residency, he went back to Seattle. And so I moved with him and then just stayed on and joined the faculty there in Seattle. That's a great story. I've, I've heard legendary stories of the uh, traction ward from charity hospital from some of our staff down here. So the, the evolution. I, re I remember interviewing. Yeah. I remember interviewing a charity when I was a medical student and uh, you know, there were wards, there were circular wards in the, in the hospital that had 13 to 14 beds in it. They were round wards and you'd have uh, patients in spica cast uh, traction. And then literally some of them were chained to their beds with guards. Yep. It was, uh, it was, I'll, I'll never forget it. The wild west. Well, yeah. and for our listeners, Dr. Rout, uh, you know, what qualities in, in medical students and in orthopedic residents do you think really set up their success as orthopedic surgeons? moving forward, you know, beyond residency and fellowship? Well, I, I think probably uh, it's just character traits that you'd be familiar with. It's, uh, you know, it's drive and it's uh, probably the, the thing that makes it easiest for most to have success is to love what they do. And, and, I'll just say that it seems to me that over time, people have lost the love for what we do. And I, I think there's so much talk about wellness and resilience and all of this stuff that people have, they lose. I mean, all you have to do is just look at the patient and realize the impact that you have. And I don't know how you can't find your resilience there, but you know, I, I'm, I, I don't understand a lot of things that people have trouble with, but I would just say that a, a passion for what you do uh, seems to make people really not burn out and really not have problems with resiliency and really have careers that they thrive in rather than survive in. And, um, and just as long as you keep your focus on the patient, I think you'll have great success and great satisfaction with your work, which is always meaningful. 
yeah, completely agree. And I definitely think that, um, you know, some people can sometimes lose, lose sight of what drew them towards the field and what, you know, kind of kept them, uh, kept them going or kept them interested. So definitely, you know, love that gem of keeping the patient first. And another question I had is, uh, I know you've worked with a lot of different trauma fellows, you know, through your time, but is there, are there any qualities that you see in a, in a trauma fellow that you're like, oh, they're, they're going to be great. Or, you know, like they're, that's a good fellow there. You know, what, what are the, some of those things that you look out for that you see? Um, we, we actually published a paper on, um, um, on what I would look for in a fellow or what are, I think some of the characteristics of fellows are. So there's actually a paper that we published on that, but I'll just say that, you know, sometimes it's hard to, I think it's usually uh, fairly predictable to know who's going to have great success. It's usually someone that comes to me from a known resource and they've already been hired back at their residency program to be the trauma surgeon there. Um, I'll just use uh, Phil Lim and Phil Mitchell from a couple of years ago, and even Kevin Phelps. Those are just all recent fellows of ours who, when they came, especially Mitchell, he was pretty much hired. They, were, they all come with jobs. And um, when people, Ray Wright was a fellow that I, I'll always remember, Ray came and his chairman you know, called and David Teague, the chairman in Oklahoma, had the same uh, chairman advocating for him, you know, coming back to be the trauma surgeon for the state of Oklahoma. And I would just say that the most reliable predictor of um, success has been someone who's going back to their residency and already has a job as a PGY4. Uh, John Eastman, he, uh, same, same thing. Just I can just tick you off a bunch of names of people that I hired that did uh, just you can't you can't say how great they are and then they all they already have jobs. that's awesome yeah um so getting into it you know you told us a great story about the the pivotal moment in sort of femur fractures like uh, to start we kind of wanted to get your historical perspective on these pelvic injuries um you know, what was the, what was the femoral nail moment for these pelvises? How were they treated and, and how did that evolve? And how did you, um, I guess, drive that evolution? Well, I, I was, uh, you know, raised on spica cast and traction. And then, you know, when we started fixing them, we really didn't have any type of specialty instruments. We didn't have recon plates or anything like that. We had three, five DC plates and we had four or five narrow and broad plates. And then we had, uh, uh, semi-surface uh, implants. Iliosacral screws weren't uh, done. Intraoperative fluoroscopy was evolving. There was really no idea of the imaging of the pelvis. Someone would say, oh, you just tilt it 45 degrees this way and tilt it 45 degrees that way, and that's your inlet. And that that's just totally wrong. That's what we were taught, but it was just very primitive. And it, it's sort of like pelvis 101. So uh, when I moved to uh, Seattle, just about everybody there Dr. Hansen, Sigvard Hansen or Ted Hansen, he had um, pretty much assigned all of the faculty members their subspecialty zones. And so um, I got assigned to uh, initially to children's uh, polytrauma. And, you know, maybe we had 15 patients in a year of polytraumatized children. It didn't happen very much. And at that, at the University of Washington back in those days, you had to publish 
12 papers within five years of your academic appointment and six had to be first author or you got fired. And so the guy that preceded me left um, uh, right at his five year anniversary. And so I was uh, basically, I just sort of fell into this uh, job where it became my assignment to uh, do pelvic surgery. And so I had a very um, wonderful x-ray tech and I had a bunch of supportive partners and I had a, you know, a leader uh, in Mark Swinkowski and Dr. Hansen. And Dr. Hansen had been sort of the pioneer of uh, femoral medullary nailing in North America. And he gave me a great bit of advice that just said, you know, why don't you do to the pelvis what we did to the femur and just start fixing them and see how they do. And um, so I worked out the fluoroscopy and we just started you know, fixing things that moved like you would for a femur. If a femur fracture is broken and it's unstable, you fix it. And so we took that philosophy to the pelvis, even though it was really a little bit of an uphill battle because the culture was to not operate on them. And you know, I was taught if you opened a pelvis, they might bleed to death. And, but then as I started taking care of more and more patients, and that was sort of my assignment, and I was just essentially doing you know, 99% of the pelvic and acetabular for the Pacific Northwest, we drained Alaska, Montana, Idaho, and Washington. You know, I just got this experience and we had a very, very functional biomechanical lab that Alan Tenser ran. Part of our wages were garnished to fund that lab so we could get our money back basically by applying for in-house or in-department grants to do research. I had a wonderful uh, intern who became a resident named Peter Simonian and he and Alan Tenser and Rich Harrington helped us. So we would just do everything in the lab and then if it worked, we'd go do it uh, in the operating room. And then my wife was in charge of CT ultrasound mammo at Harborview. She's a radiologist. And so I could get post-op CT scans on all my patients pretty easily and reliably because of that. So it was very much a lot of serendipity uh, and a lot of support and a lot of drive for, you know, research and a lot of, uh, you know, there's a, there was just a, you know, I had a hammer over my head to publish these papers or else I was going to get fired. So I didn't, and a lot of, lot of faculty had come and gone, and I just didn't want to be one of those people that had come and gone. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to make my promotion and, right. you know, uh, I wanted to do it. And so luckily Peter and the lab and, you know, all my partners, you know, you, you know, if you volunteer and say, Hey guys, you know, I'll take care of every pelvic fracture that comes in. If when you're on call, are you okay with that? And then it was like, yeah, sure. You know, absolutely. <laughs> of course. <laughs> You know, you sort of put all your wine and all your beer and all your liquor away and you know, you just, uh, you're just pretty much ready all the time. And uh, back in those days, there was no internet. So if they called you and said, you know, there's this unstable pelvis, I'd drive in 15 minutes and, you know, you get there and sometimes it wasn't an injury at all. But yeah, it just, it's, it's a long story, but it, it uh, you know, if you ask me to compress 30 years or whatever, that's the compression of it all. Uh, and just to follow up, because you mentioned a little bit about how a lot of the treatment at this time was very sort of slow or non-operative management, sort of based on the work of Leitonel and the Judea brothers. I mean, you know, was was what you were doing considered radical? I mean, was it well received at first or did you sort of have to, to bring it to the forefront of modern orthopedics? Well, I never got tomatoes thrown at me, uh, but I, you know, I think when we started uh, doing iliosacral screws in the posterior pelvic ring and doing that pretty routinely, um, you know, I would present in those days, you could pre present three or four papers in an, an academy or a, if you had good research, they let you present whatever you had. And, you know, you, you'd present several papers and 
in those days they would have discussion and you know people would line up in the aisles to you know just um it, it wasn't it wasn't good i mean uh, my partners were very supportive um and then most importantly the patients really did better than i'd ever seen anybody do and then the lab work supported what we were doing and so the patients were doing great they were doing better than i'd ever seen it all made sense uh we were getting cts so we were we knew we were safe we were testing stuff in the lab all the different fixation constructs we were doing you know and the you know the information about s tablet or if uh I had a colleague uh, and a, uh, a guy that taught me about acetabular ORF, um, and I, I really owe him a debt of gratitude because he knew a whole lot about what Emil had taught, uh, Professor Letronel had taught to him. So um, I had a good early inroad on, you know, a, a very, very good ilioinguinal with an intrapelvic window added to it. So I, I learned that in 1989. So, you know, I didn't have to wait till 2020 to learn the, the AI, what y'all call the AIP now. I learned it in 88 when it was the Stolpa approach or this, uh, you know. So I, I, I just came together to answer your question. And um, I had support locally. Um, I had support from the Pacific Northwest Orthopedic Surgeons because they were sending all the patients and then what we were sending back to Anchorage and Ketchikan and Sitka and to Fairbanks and to Missoula and to Helena and to Butte and to Boise, those clinicians that in the past had taken care of patients in traction or cast or X fixes, they were seeing these iliosacral screws and ramus screws and all these screws everywhere, all a lot of it percutaneous. And, you know, they, they were hooked too. So my referral resources you know, once they see a few patients come back that are tr transformational, then, you know, they're sending more, you know, can you do this one? Can you do this one? You know, back in those days, they would FedEx x-rays, you know, they would just take the x-ray jacket, make a copy of it, send the, send it by FedEx. You'd look at the films then call them and say, yes, send the patient or no, that doesn't need fixating, you know? So there was no internet to, you know, no, nobody was sending me films on my phone. No, no pictures, no iPhones and iMessages. And, yeah. uh, Yes. Yeah, so, so I always find it interesting, not interesting, but, um, you know, just always hear, you know, when the, the societies were, you know, these orthopedic societies were starting in the seventies or eighties that if they had a video, you had to send it on a video cassette via mail to somebody else. And then they, you know, they looked at it or just like you were saying with x-rays, they used to send it by, by mail and then you pull it up and you, and you look and you see, and then you kind of call and communicate from there. And it's just interesting to see how far the technology is, it has came and it has come in just you know the short amount of time yeah but to answer your question uh, nationally and internationally there wasn't great support for this there was a lot of uh, i would say a lot of in those days uh, x fix of the pelvis superstructure eiffel tower anterior pelvic external fixators were really popular and people were cheerleading for those and uh you know that that was sort of the standard of care and so you start talking about putting screws and there were there were also very famous people saying some pretty bad things about iliosacral screws and ORIF of the pelvis and things like that. There were some figureheads that had, had bad experiences with it. And so, you know, the, the water was, was rough, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was dirty water. There was blood in the water and there were sharks, you know, if you really want to know what the environment was like, it was, uh, it wasn't an easy way to sort of start your, there was, there was no nurturing, you know, other than my own colleagues, Brad Henley and, you know, Paul Anderson and Mark Swinkowski, Steve Banershka, Ted Hansen, you know, those, those colleagues really 
helped me to uh, do do what I was able to do. And I was going to say, what other, you know, because, you know, just like you say, you, at first it wasn't the, the most well-received. And so you're kind of going against the grain when, you, when you're bringing up and you're saying, you know, these are these different treatment options or different things that you're doing. And, you know, it has to take a certain level of grit and, you know, um, perseverance in order to kind of continue that going. But what, you know, looking back at it, what characteristics or what qualities would you say that, that you had that helped you persevere through that? I know you mentioned your team before, uh, if that's one of the qualities, but anything else that you can think of? No, I think the, the only thing that really sold everybody was just the way the patients were doing. I mean, it, this wasn't a hard sell to people that were with me working, seeing how the patients were doing or the referral people. The, the patients were the proof. And so they were, <laughs> they were 50,000 times better than they had been ever before with traction or spike, a cast or frame. They didn't have any of the problems that those things caused. There was no malunions, non-union, you know, there was, are very few, you know. And then we had worked really hard to try to make the techniques safe to where we weren't just saying, well, let's just put the screw in here and fire it in and see what, it, you know, let's see where, you know, if the leg kicks when we put it in here. And we, we didn't do any of that. We worked it all out in the lab. And then we had a lot of good, uh, you know, good sessions in the lab where we could use the floral and make the, you know, mark up the, the pathways and learn the, the limits and things like that. So it, it was a, it was a snowball effect. But it, it was the patience. I mean, it wasn't grit. It was just, the patience. It, was, it was, um, you know, addicted to what you're doing. And then you see the patients doing well, and you, you realize that you've got some pretty meaningful work and why wouldn't you want to do that all the time? You know? Right. You just, you can't listen to people that don't know. <laughs> if you listen to people that don't know, you're going to get yourself down an alley that you don't belong in. You have to listen to the people that know, and that's usually your patients or your colleagues that are bright enough to be candid with you, you know? Right, exactly. So let's get, let's get into sort of the meat of this, you know, in the, I, when, as we've sort of talked about posterior SI screws were the first big jump. Um, a lot of the work that was coming out in the 70s and 80s sort of talked about the posterior reduction and fixation being the most critical, something that has sort of changed as we started to understand more. We'll get into that, but can you sort of take us through the, the principles for posterior fixation of the pelvic ring? Well, I, I just think, you know, I, I think probably the simplest way to look at it is, um, is just think about uh, the pelvis as sort of uh, doors. And the anterior ring or the symphysis is the strike side of the door uh, or the two doors. Just imagine it's French doors that come together, you know, barn doors that come together. And then the posterior ring is uh, the hinge, the hinge side of the door. Almost always that's the scenario, unless you really knock the door off the frame and then the hinge and you've got a completely unstable situation, but almost always there's a hinge side and a strike side. And simplistically, if you can understand that, that's really all you need to know. And then if you go to the lab, one of the, one of the first experiments we did was we looked at a ring with several injuries around it, ramus fracture, sacral fracture, and iliac fracture. And you know it doesn't take uh, that much intelligence to realize that if you fix every site that's unstable, they work symbiotically or they work together in a collaborative way. Each site of fixation helps the other. And if you deny 
the iliac fracture that's unstable fixation. Well, then the sacral fixation and the ramus fixation have to really work harder and they're stressed. Doesn't mean it's not going to work. It just means that the implants that you put in have to work harder. It's just like crewing a, a, a rowboat. You, you take away an oar and everybody else has to work a little bit harder. So um, it's pretty simple. So uh, if you just think about strike side and hinge side, for almost all pelvic ring injuries that'll work unless the, the door is blown off the hinges and then there is no strike side hinge side and then you start going at it. So if you look at it that way, then the symphysis of the ramus and those things become important because that strike side movement and then the hinge side becomes quite important as well because sometimes you can't get to the strike side or sometimes you, you, know, you, you, you have to overpower the, the hinge side and because you can't fix the strike side or whatever. There, there's always scenarios of open injuries or bladder injuries or urethral, you know, there's all different types of clinical scenarios that sort of manipulate you into doing something that you ordinarily might not do, but you have to do in order to serve the patient as well as possible. So post posterior ring fixation has always been important. Uh, people denied it early on because it was complicated. The exposures were hard. The initial ORF were done posterior. There was, you know, over 30% wound complication rates in the early series. So you know, if anything sort of drove my career, it was that paper by Dr. Kellum when he was in Toronto that showed that there was a 38% uh, incidence of wound complications with posterior pelvic ORIF. And I mean, you don't have to hit me in the head too hard with data. If, if you tell me 38% of the time, something's going to have a wound infection or breakdown, yeah, I'm looking for a better, I don't, I don't think that's a very good solution. You know, modern literature, modern surgical techniques have lowered that, but at the time, that's all I had, you know, and so, right. you know, what, what we know now is not what we knew in 1990. So I was just working with what we had in 1990. Okay. And I think a, a good way to kind of break it down and go over this is we can kind of maybe talk about some things to consider when we're, when we're talking about fixing the anterior ring, the posterior ring, and then we can kind of get into some of the fixation uh, pathways, but uh, Dr. Rao, in your you know experience, what are some you know things you should consider when you're thinking about you know fixing the anterior ring or when you're doing an open reduction and in internal fixation? And what is you know your thoughts behind X fixing it versus doing an open reduction internal fixation with plates and screws? Well, I would say that fr frames are good for resuscitative situations or um, pretty unusual for definitive management. Even though I realize that. Definitive is usually six to eight weeks in an anterior frame. One of the things that I've, I haven't completely stopped using frames, but I will usually, I would say 99% of the frames that I use now are just intraoperative to either help with the temporary resuscitation of a patient or manipulate an unstable hemipelvis or bilateral hemipelvis to get reductions that I can then put either percutaneous or if I have to open fixation. So we, we um, you know, hardly use X fixes definitively. Some people still do, but if you keep using them, you'll realize that patients hate them and they're not very strong and they don't last very long. And they're just a lot of nuisance for not, there's a very long run for a very short gate. So I, I'm not right. a fan of frames. Uh, ORIF of the anterior ring, I think is pretty much a standard, especially for, you know, uh, really unstable injuries, the uh, distraction injury to the symphysis pubis, you know, open book injury. That's a, a, a very good standard of care is just plate 
in parasympathetic ramus fractures that you can't get a manipulative reduction and can't fix percutaneously. Those need some type of ORIF. It, you, can, you can still fix it with a medullary screw. Perhaps you don't necessarily have to use a, a surface implant, but um, you know, I, I, I think the anterior ring demands respect just like the posterior ring does. You know, you're, you're showing an example of a symphysial plate. I tell you that symphysis is already That symphysis didn't start that amount of distraction right at the time that the surgeon put the plate on. That plate has failed and that symphysis is, is wide. And you can look at the iliosacral screw and it's bent. And so that left-sided sacral fracture is really stressing the iliosacral screw that may, may or may not be safe, but it this is an underpowered fixation construct that you're showing because you can see the symphysis has signs of yielding and the, the, the iliosacral screw has clinical radi or radiographic sign of yielding as well. So typically for unstable ring injuries, this construct that you show with a single iliosacral screw for a sacral fracture, that was sort of 1990 to around 94, 95. And then started, you know, realizing that single screw fixation was associated with failure. You know, we had higher failure rates than when we would put in two screws. And so then we started putting in, you know, two screws in the upper sacral segment, and then a single screw in the second sacral segment when we could, but we didn't have long screws until 2006, the only screws. So we didn't have anything longer than 130. So we couldn't do transsacral fixation very much at all until 2006. Once, in, once we got the longer screws up to 180 in 2006, then we could take off and get to multiple levels. And you know, then the transsacral screws became kind of more popular. But anyway, then this is what you're showing right there. It's an unstable ring injury, probably a C-type injury. And it's really iliosacral screw fixation in the stable part of the sacrum. And you've got a yielding, a yielding symphysis plate. So, so that being said about, you know, kind of regarding plating the anterior pelvis, what is your, uh, I guess, implant of choice? You know, do you, do you use recon plates? Do you use, you know, the, the thicker, stouter um, plates? Or how do you decide, you know, what plates you're going to use for the synthesis? Well, I've, um, I like either a six or it just has to be contoured uh, to where it fits the surface of the bone. You can use these uh, thicker plates. This is a plate that has a thicker middle. The, the problem is... Um, no one likes to see their plate break, but they'll tolerate loose screws or broken screws. And so you, you, your audience just needs to know this is pubis. It's a joint. And when it disrupts, it's torn ligaments and then and, and torn tissues. Then we put it back together with this plate, but it, it's going to move again because it's a joint. It's not, going to, it's not going to consolidate usually. I know there are papers that say if you clamp it really hard and you take the cartilage out, it'll consolidate, but most people haven't been able to reproduce that finding, but something's gonna yield. And so the symphysial screws in the plate are gonna shake a little bit, or they're gonna disengage a little bit, or they're gonna break. But a lot of people just don't like to see a broken plate. So they'll use a thicker plate like this one, but they don't care if the screws break. And I, that mentality doesn't, I don't understand that at all, but the symphysis is always gonna shake a little bit, and so your, your implant in the front is the, the implant will, the, the plate will usually fatigue, a screw will disengage or a screw will break or, or multiple screws will break. It's not symptomatic, but you just see it on the x-ray. And then these holes that you see here designed in the plate, these were, someone thought that you could sew the rectus, you know, when the rectus was traumatically injured, you would sew ah, it to the plate. To the plate. And I, I have to tell you that, you know, that 
rectus usually has a place where it inserts and it's not right there. The rectus inserts anteriorly and caudal, you know, to the, sim the, the symphysial area. Wherever it evolves from, there's a cuff of tissue down there that you sew it to, you know, you don't sew it to a plate. But for some reason, people want holes in the plate to sew to, but it, it, it doesn't make any sense because that's not where the muscle came from. You know, the muscle came from right. caudal to that. But anyway, you know, this is people know what they know. And does it matter, you know, is there any um, any preference to the amount of screw fixation that you need on either side of the uh, of the symphysis? Well, you you don't. So when I first started, we used two whole four or five uh, narrow DC plates and we would put six, five cancellers through through each side. And the problem with a two hole plate is it, it just it just it just swivels on, on whichever side is unstable. And so we learned really quickly that you know, trying to take a two hole implant, it would just swivel or the screws, the six, five screws would just distract. So that didn't take long to figure out. So then we went to three, five DC plates, four hole, three, five DC plates, cause they're harder to contour. And then the recon plates came out. And so people started using six hole recon. I like eight just because it gives me more points of fixation. It doesn't really take me too far beyond the limit of the fixation. It puts me out near the iliac system, but I, you know, it's about, I do. So I, I don't worry about that, but I think a lot of people like six cause it just keeps them in the sort of this, uh, what they call a safe area, you know, not out there with the spermatic cord, not out there with the iliac vessels, not where the corona could li live, you know, it's, it's just uh, simple and safe. And, and so what I, do I, think do... the six, I think the six hole recon plate is probably the, what most people would advocate for. Okay. And, and, and when you're doing your approach, can you kind of walk us through your approach? Do you use a, a fan of steel incision? Do you use, you know, a vertical incision on the, you know, on the abdomen or how, how do you do, or, or key points to the approach that you've learned, you know, through your years of experience. You can you can do either a, a low vertical midline, or you can do a fan and steel. The fan and steel is traditionally, you know, uh, what was initially used when I was uh, early in my career in my residency. We would even sometimes have an OB/GYN doctor or a general surgeon do the approach for us because it was so unfamiliar to orthopedic surgeons. Sometimes a urologist would come. The, the problem is, is you know, a fan and steel to a gen doctor is not the fan and steel we need it theirs is usually where the uterus is not where the bone is and so after a while we just started doing our own when mark adams was my fellow probably 10 years ago he uh you know he just asked me why we never used a low vertical midline i said well we do sometimes and so then for his whole year of his residency we just did low midline low midline low. that's all we did the, the whole year he was a fellow and then we just looked at the series of them and it was the same you know it, it, it didn't really matter if he did fan and steel or low midline whatever whatever the surgeon wants to use. And any, and, and Bear, I know uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think some of our attendings, when they're reducing these, they, they use, you know, at least most of ours that I've seen use just Weber clamps to get a reduction. Is there any other special tools or, or things that you use as far as when you're reducing your anterior, uh, you know, your symphysis, your anterior ring injury? Well, there are probably about, 30 different ways to uh, reduce a symphysis, but the simplest and the most reliable one is just a medium tenaculum clamp. And the medium tenaculum clamp doesn't even have to go into bone necessarily. If it's just a pure distraction entry and there's not a bunch of cranial or ro rotary deformity or flexion extension deformity, then it's just a you know a clamp that you could even just clamp the back part of the pubic of the rectus abdominis where it inserts into the bone, clamp that area of the soft tissue and it'll bring the bone back together. Sometimes you just put the Holman retractors behind the rectus and that'll almost reduce the symphysis. But if there's cranial caution extension or translation, then sometimes the tenaculum has to go oblique. We did one just last week and the, we had to do an oblique 
clamp uh, application. So the tenaculum, you, you've got an image here of a tenaculum clamp, a large tenaculum. It's been put through some bone holes, and that's fine as long as the bone holes are solid and don't crack through. The tenaculum doesn't, you know, crack through the, the bone hole. And then um, your bone holes in your clamp don't want to obstruct the plate application. You have to put them sort, sort of remote. But, you know, some people advocate for a Jungbluth clamp or a Farabuff clamp, you know, clamps that are put in through screws that go from anterior to posterior. And that way they feel like they can manipulate the hemipelvis better. But the reality is 99% of the injuries that I do like this are acute injuries. They're unstable. And I just need to vector the clamp to match their deformity. So if they're caudal or cranial, I just they're distracted and then their collar cranial i just put the clamp obliquely and then it right. brings the bones together and corrects the flexion extension or the translation so it's it's a pretty simple fix it, it's not it's not that complicated right and we're gonna we're gonna move on and talk a little bit about posterior but I, just from a, a, a sequencing sort of perspective do you feel i know some of the older teaching is that the posterior ring is perhaps the more important, so you would get that reduction correct first and then move anteriorly. Do you feel that's necessary or do you feel a good anterior reduction would then aid or in fact reduce the posterior pelvic ring? Well, I mean, you, you just asked a really complicated question that sounds really simple. And it, it, I would just say, I, I, I can't really answer your question, but I'll just give you a scenario that sort of refine it a little bit and bring it into a tighter sphere. Let's leave the sacrum out of it. And let's just mm -hmm. do a pure, complete sacroiliac joint. Not, a, not an open book that's hinged posteriorly. The SI joint's incomplete, but a, a complete right side. A week ago, we had a patient um, who came from another country um, and he had a complete symphysis that was six centimeters apart and a complete SI joint that was a centimeter and a half to two centimeters. His right hemipelvis when posteriorly translated the country for three days, it really didn't correct very well. So it didn't look like it was going to be great for a closed reduction of the posterior pelvic. It's a symphyseal injury. And if you get an accurate reduction of the symphysis uh, and then you have the patient in traction, you know, his, his, his sacroiliac joint lined up almost perfectly other than, you know, a centimeter and a half of, of pure distraction. And so we just vectored the iliosacral screw to compress it. And, you know, the reduction is better than I can get with an open reduction sometimes. So um, the, the magic or the trick is to know what you're dealing with and to not give up hope until something doesn't work. You know, if the tenaculum clamp's not working, use a Jungbluth or a Farabuff. Use whatever you need to use to get the symphysis right. If the closed reduction of the posterior pelvic ring and is not working, well, then you have to go to open reduction. Have a plan to where the nurses know and everybody knows that if this posterior ring doesn't well, you're going to be doing an iliac window of an ilioangle and clamping the SI joint. And, you know, you still may fix it with iliosacral screws, but you're going to do an open reduction. And, and that way people know uh, in the operating room, what the sequencing is. If it's a sacral fracture, that's different because then the sac some sacral fractures warrant initial ORIF prone, and then we turn over. But if, again, if it's a symphyseal injury, the at this point can act really that now the hinge side, if you will, and then turn the patient over and do the sacrum. There's all these stories that, well, if you don't get the symphysis just right, you're going to block your reduction in the back and all this other stuff. I would just say, don't get the symphysis wrong. You know I mean? It's, if you can't get a symphysis <laughs> right. like reduced well, you shouldn't be doing the sacrum. So I, I, it's, uh, it doesn't even make sense to me, some of these circular arguments that we get into, you know? 
Right. And that's exactly what I was referring to is a lot of the, the anterior will block the posterior and so on and so forth. That um, something that I've, I guess, come to understand or have been told is something of a, uh, an outdated teaching. But this is a good segue into open reduction of the posterior ring, um, something that I certainly have not seen in training, um, something that is, I think, and hope is becoming more and more rare, just given the rate of complications we kind of alluded to earlier. But you know, what would be your indications, as you sort of alluded to in the last um, um, talking point, but some of your indications for doing a posterior open reduction internal fixation of an SI joint, and um, what, what, what does that look like? Well, I, I would tell you that it's really rare in my career to do an ORIF of an SI joint from the posterior approach, just because it's really hard to see any part of the SI joint except the very caudal facet. You can see the caudal facet. So uh, I can count on two hands how many ORIF of the SI joint I've done from posterior in my career, and I can just tell you some of the indications. Uh, one of the most recent ones uh, I, I did with uh, Kevin Phelps when he was a fellow, and it, I did an ORIF of an SI joint because uh, the patient had a cervical spine injury and they put her prone for her neck first. It was on a Sunday and I just went in and while she was prone, just click, click, we did her SI, her because she had an acetabulum under it. So that I really needed that SI joint right because I needed to get the transverse posterior wall that was under it to, or else if I didn't have the SI joint right, I'm not going to get the acetabulum right. So that, that was a, that was one. Um, recently we had a, a guy that um, had his entire ilium in front of his sacrum. He had a really traumatic fracture dislocation. Wow. And so we did a posterior approach because his ilium was in front of his sacrum. And so it makes sense to, instead of trying to move it and move it posterior into the table, it would be smarter to bring it away from the table and, and reduce it that way. So that, that a, a dramatic example. The other that comes to mind easily was a guy that had a complete symphysis pubis injury and a complete SI joint. And he had a, a wound that was about, I'd say two centimeters over his posterior SI joint. So I, I did his symphysis first because it was clean and uncontaminated and then turned him over, did his irrigation and debridement of his buttock wound essentially that was in communication with his SI joint and just extended mm -hmm. it clean and decontaminated the SI joint open wound and then just clamped it and then used iliosacral screws. So I would say for SI joints, it's a, an unusual situation. If you add a crescent iliac fracture to that sacroiliac injury, then that's going to be different because we are going to do open reduction of certain sacroiliac crescent injuries uh, that, that aren't amenable to closed manipulative. Uh, okay. And then for sacral fractures, if you talk about sacral fractures, then a lot of times it's uh, when we're working in concert with the, uh, the spine surgeons to do lumbopelvic, or there's, um, there's debris, there's bone fragments in the nerve tunnel that we need to get out before we do the reduction, or we don't have a good closed reduction to where a screw or we want to make sure we do an open reduction to get the tunnels put back together so we don't inadvertently hurt the nerve by just doing some kind of random screw hopeful reduction of a transframinal sacral fracture. So th those are just some of the variety of times when we turn a patient prone to do right. an ORIF. There are others, but I mean, we, we could- But it's more on. of a case-by-case -case basis, you'd say, as opposed to something that would be routinely done. Yeah, I would say the only routine is to adjust to what the patient needs. I mean, that, that's, right. that's the routine. Right. Right. Yeah. 
And uh, I think it is a, a good time to kind of transition and get into kind of talking about, you know, these different, you know, pathways of the pelvis, you know, these osteofixation uh, pathways. Now, Dorado, if you could, uh, could you kind of go over some, you know, number one, what is, and then can you kind of go over the important ones to, that we should know about uh, as far as when we're regarding fixing, you know, these pelvic ring injuries? Well, I, I would say that, you know, every single one of those bone tubes is important to know. And the trouble is, is you're trying to put straight implants into curved bones. And the good news is almost all those pathways that you have right there are, and there are more, um, but those are really common fixation points. And I would say um, there it's, it, the, the only key to it is getting the fracture reduced so that the tube um, it's like a Venn diagram, you know, you want to have the reduction to where the tube is put back together to where you, your implant is not kind of a hopeful implant, it's a strategic implant. And then the other thing is, is just the knowledge of the, the imaging. And so I would say, you know, like the ones you see on the patient's left hemipelvis there that go down into the gluteus medius pillar, that's a hard one to get. And, and this, this is just an example that you're showing of a wire that's, uh, you know, that exits uh, when you don't know, when you don't know it, you just, that's just a, that's a high anterior wire, but to a endoscopy view, an obturator outlet image, wire looks like it's in the bone. And when you do an inlet image, it looks like it's in the bone, but the psoas gutter is a trough there that the wire can exit out inadvertently. And the pectineal slope right there where the pectineus muscle is originating, that's another area. So we, it's just like the sacral ala we have to understand the ala of the ramus. And the ramus has an ala where the pectineus originates and the ala has, I mean, and the ramus has an ala where the psoas gutter is. So um, it's, just, it's just knowledge of osteology and the ability to image it reliably. And then, then it becomes very simple. You know, then it, it becomes, it's just the same as nail on a femur. You just have to realize it's not a round tube or a, it's not, unfortunately these, osseous fixation pathways aren't cubes, like elongated rectangles, three-dimensional cubes, where we would just image them AP, image them lateral, and we're good. You know, tangential, tangential, you can see the entire surface. The trouble is these are undulating surfaces that are complicated. Right, so when we're, what are some key points as, as far as imaging that we should know about when we're, when we're talking about, you know, our, our osseous fixation pathway through the, through the superior ramus and what are some common things? I know you just mentioned actually a couple uh, things to you know avoid you know when the when the uh, wires coming out of you know from where the pectineus originates but what is the important imaging that we should know uh, and pay attention to when we're talking about our superior ceramus fixation pathway i think the first thing you should do is get a model of a pelvis in your hand and understand and uh, the surface of the posterior cortical uh, area of the superior pubic ramus and understand how it changes how it is oriented and just know that. The next I would say is understanding the anterior limit on the inlet view as well, and understanding how you'd have to adjust the C-arm in order to be tangential to that posterior ramus cortical surface. The next is to just put your finger into the obturator sulcus where the obturator neurovascular bundle is and realize that thing is really hard to image. And so that should be an area where you wouldn't even put a screw and then the other is just, you see, is uh, obturator outlet image. The obturator outlet image shows you the acetabulum. It shows you the, the limit of the superior pubic ramus cranially and uh, just gives you a really nice look at the pathway. 
most people uh, don't have a C-shaped ramus that's so C-shaped you can't get a straight implant in it reliably through its extent. Some people do. Some people really have C-shaped on the inlet view and C-shaped on the obturator outlet and together to where you're unable to put in a 130 millimeter screw or a 120 millimeter screw or a 140 millimeter screw because you could only use a 90 or 105 because of the curvature. So we have to accommodate whatever the patient gives us. But you know those radiographic landmarks are just the superior pubic ramus's edge on the obturator outlet cranially, and that's a posterior edge, the acetabular dome, and then on the inlet view, the quadrilateral, I mean, the uh, posterior cortical surface of the superior pubic ramus. There, there's a lot more. I mean, I, if I was sitting with you and we had a model, you know, I could talk to you about this for 12 hours. Right, right, right. Yeah, totally, um, totally agree and, and understand that. And, you know, some of the, the most common ones, at least these pathways that we use, or at least that, you know, Barry, correct me if, if I'm wrong, that we've seen about or that we've, we've seen have been kind of these ramus, uh, these ramus screws or ramus pathways, and then kind of going into our uh, SI screws or that SI pathway. So I think that may be something we can, we can concentrate on and kind of um, what are some things that, you know, when we're looking for putting in, you know, transsacral transiliac screws, and can you kind of talk about that pathway and what is important as far as imaging and things we should be on the lookout for for it? Yeah, I, I think y'all are in a real privileged way um, just because you have a very, very good, high quality surface rendered um, pelvic modeling now that's based off CT scans. Oh, the right, the surface rendered images are the best. For, uh, for seeing the anterior cortical limit of the ala, whether it's a dysmorph or not. And then we just rotate it to see where the exit points of the neural of the upper sacral segment, the S1 or S2, depending on what level you're looking at, you want to be able to see that as well. And then you just orient your screw to accommodate the pathway and the pathology. So if it's an upper sacral segment dysmorphism, it's going to be an oblique screw. It's a non-dysmorph or it's a second sacral segment, then you are gonna have a, a straight horizontal pathway that's really easy to, to work with. So, and you can do trans, transsacral or transiliac transsacral fixation. So that, that you know, this is, uh, this is tough to do without a bunch of uh, examples. And I think you're showing here, yeah, you're just, you're, yeah. And then, I mean, it depends on who's doing the marking on the models as well of what you're seeing, but you right. know, um, there's a, the good news is there's tons of literature on this topic that can help you understand it better. And then if like y'all have Dr. Vemla Polly and Dr. You know, Dr. Gladden that can help you learn. So I think sometimes the best way to learn is to have someone who really knows it, teach it to you. That's the easiest way. And I think what we can do is, you know, we have a couple cases, uh, at least some pictures, some injuries that, that, that we that were able to find and bring up. And I think what would be nice to do is kind of go through these and, you know, you take a look at the injury and, and you know, let us know kind of what you think or how you would treat these injuries. And then, um, you know, we can see what they did and then we can kind of talk about, you know, different ways that, that, that these, you know, this injury could be treated. Yeah, let's see, so let me pull it up here. I'm gonna, so, tell you that, I'm gonna tell you that I'll praise it the way I would praise my own and I'll bash it the way I would bash my own. <laughs> Perfect. I'm, Perfect. I'm gonna, That's exactly what we're, what we're looking for. for. Yep. So uh, here, you know, say this is a 25 year old male uh, who, you know, was hit by a car and has these injuries, you know, so Dr. Rod, number one, how, what do you, 
what do you see and what do you notice from these? I'm sure your your eyes pick up things that my eyes probably don't, don't haven't picked up yet. And then how would you go about treating this? Well, I, I think uh, you've got great images here. And on the left, you have an AP, a uh, surface rendered AP. Uh, in the middle, you have some some version of an inlet. It's a little bit, it's, it's, it's a lot of an inlet. And then you've got a pretty good outlet, at least for an operating room, that'd be a good outlet. And so if we just start with the outlet on the far right, you can see the initial tuberosities aren't symmetrical. They're not level. So there's either, you know, some, some type of cranial caudal displacement with a hippie pelvis or there's flexion extension or a little bit of both. If you look at the iliac crests, they're level and they're level with the disc space between five and one. And so that just means there's probably a flexion or extension component to the unstable hemipelvis. The symphysis is a little bit disturbed. This, this again, I don't know if these images were obtained in a circumferential pelvic wrap, whether this patient sheeted or not. And so that could be an eight centimeter symphyseal distraction injury that just got put into a binder or a sheet and it's just reduced really well. So you can see some really beautiful reductions of some terrible symphyseal injuries, but that can also just be a minor symphyseal injury because you'll see bilateral ramus fractures on both sides as well. And that can cause or be associated with a disturbance or a little, not a terrible disturbance of the symphysis like you see. And then just to go around, you see bilateral ramus fractures. They're, they're uh, both sort of mid to peripheral pubic ramus fractures. Um, the inferior ramus are broken as well. And then on the right side, there's uh, some type of a sacral crush. And uh, you can see it uh, probably best on the AP view that you're showing. Um, there's not a lot of asymmetry of the right hemipelvis relative to the left on the inlet view. If you key on the ischial spines, the ischial spines are symmetrical. The symphysis is pretty much right down the middle of the spine. There's no posterior anterior translation. There's a little bit of symphyseal irregularity. But again, that kind of goes along with what we saw on the outlet. On the AP, you can't really see the symphyseal irregularity too much at all. So there's not a lot of deformity here. If the patient's in a binder or sheet, all bets are off. But this, you know, this looks like an unstable ring. It looks like it's bilateral ramus fractures in a some version of a, a, a zone one sacral fracture that's likely A to P and caught uh, because of the deformity through the ischial tuberosities. But uh, again, I, I don't know how the images are obtained. Right. So, so say for example, you know, this is out of the pelvic sheet. Um, you know, they're just sitting there and they just got these images. And so this is what we're stuck with, you know, otherwise they're clear, they're good to go to the OR. Um, you know, they may have, they have, you know, a couple uh, rib fractures, but otherwise they're, they're stable. Uh, in your mind, how are you fixing this? And, you know, what are you, what concert are you doing to, to, to stabilize the pelvis? Well, you're asking me to plan a surgery without seeing all the images. And so, I, but I'm, I'm good with that if you're good with that. But uh, let's just assume that it's a complete uh, sacral injury and it's got minimal deformity. And uh, in this patient, I would most likely uh, accept this little bit of deformity. I would, uh, you know, use uh, two uh, oblique iliosacral screws in the upper sacral segment, most likely a, a, a horizontal screw at S2. So I have multiple screws at multiple levels for the posterior pelvic ring. I don't think this needs transsacral fixation. Uh, and then I'd use Ramus uh, screws, probably integrate on the right, because I'm going to be set up on the right for the iliosacral screws. And then I'd probably do retrograde on the left, just so I don't have to move the C-arm from right to left. But if you say, well, I think he's got a hernia in the front and he's big and fat and you can't get to his tubercle, then I'll do turn the room around. You know, I'll just move the C-arm around, move myself around and do an integrate on the left. But I would uh, screw both ramus and, uh, you know, I would for sure 
use uh, most likely two upper sacral segment oblique screws. And I can't see S2, but you know, pretty much a blue plate specialist two at one and one at two. And, and what makes you, you, you mentioned you, you didn't think that it need trans, you know, transsacral fixation. What in your head, what, what are you thinking about or that would, that would make you think, okay, they probably need transsacral transiliac fixation or so. Well, I would look at the axial view and just see what the quality of the bone is in the body. And so if the quality of the bone is really good in the body, and this is, looks like a young person, uh, and it's not a terrible C-type injury, I don't feel like I have to bridge the other SI joint, you know, if it's, if it's uninjured. If you tell me the other SI joint's injured, then that's a whole different ball game. But if the left hemipelvis posteriorly is stable, I don't feel that I have to use a transsacral screw at the upper or the second sacral level when there's good bone in the vertebral body part of, or the central body part of, of the sacrum to dock a screw or two or three into. And, and do you use your, your oblique trajectory with your, with your SI screw? You use that just because, you know, it's more kind of parallel to the joint. Is that your reasoning for no. using those types? Okay. No, I'm just, I'm just looking at the pathway on the, if you look at the outlet view, you can okay. see the, the upper sacral segment slope of the ala from, cranial to caudal from posterior to anterior and right. you could just, you could understand that the osseous fixation pathway for that is going to be reliably safer with oblique screws than trying to sneak in transsacral screws if you give me a patient that really needs transsacral screws there make this person 80 years old with a u-shaped sacral fracture then i'm going to put two transsacral screws in that patient but you've given me a scenario with a younger bone quality and not much of a deformity i just need to hold this so it can heal and and it, it it's um i don't have to get ag aggressive with the other side in order to get that fixation that i'm that i'm seeking and, and what size screws are you are you using and why well i would use seven o screws for the posterior pelvic ring and i'd use four fives or seven o's in the anterior pelvic ring I, I'm not a fan of three, five screws in the ramus just because that's what we started with in the early 90s. And I had patients that bent uh, their fixation. So uh, three, five screws can bend, four, five screws can as well, but really harder to bend. And then seven O screws are the hardest, but a lot of osseous fixation pathways, the superior pubic ramus won't fit a seven O screw easily. These would, these are really big pathways that you could see. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, it'd be fine, but uh, I'm just usually a four or five kind of person for the ramus okay and you know another question i had so if you could fit if you could fit um two two screws in the upper sickle segment what would what what would uh indicate you or what what would be an indication to try to get another screw in a second and in, in the lower second second sickle segment is it just well, a say, amount of instability yeah i would uh i think instability is a great topic but i would i would just say that um if you ask me that in 2011, and I worked in Seattle with a thin population of patients who are highly compliant, I would tell you that I'd probably just put two screws in the upper sacral segment. If you then moved me on January 1st, 2013 to Texas, and you add about 150 pounds to every one of my patients, and they're almost 90% non-compliant, I'm going to load up this posterior pelvic ring because I have a host who's not reasonable with their rehabilitation. And so I have to protect them from themselves by adding in screws. And so I've had to really use more fixation when I moved to Texas, just because the patient, you know, in Seattle, I had 90%
I think my patients were probably 80 to 90% compliant with our weight bearing restrictions based on their behaviors when they came back to clinic. Down here, I can't get people to use crutches for two weeks. As <laughs> yeah. soon as they start, like New Orleans. I mean, no, as soon as they start feeling good, they're walking and going back to work. So, yeah. right. which I, you know, I, I, uh, I, I can't argue with that. I would just like them to use their crutches a little bit more. Yeah, Barry. Anything? Uh, anything you want to add to this case or questions uh, about you know this or what? What you do? No, at this point, I'm just curious to see how they fixed it. <laughs> uh, so this is what they did. So it looks like they. Well, I think it's underfixed. It's underfixed in the back, and um, I'm going to just tell you the. I think the right Ramus screw is good. That left Ramus screw is uh, not um, is not good at all, and you can see it's it's not securing the medial portion on the inlet view, you can see the left-sided retrograde screw is not in that parasympathetic part of the bone. So that I mean the fracture is probably not very well secured with that. Plus I think that spermatic cord with a starting point like that, you're starting out where the spermatic cord is more approximate to that. So I, I think that's a much, much riskier screw. And then I, I'd also just say that upper sacral segment screw is most likely intruded through the lateral iliac cortical bone. You'll see how medial the head is to the SI joint. And um, that is underpowered fixation for the posterior pelvic ring for this injury, I think. And I would add a washer to that screw just so you know where the lateral iliac cortical bone is. A washer on the iliosacral screw with a tangential view during the, set, the, the terminal seating of the screw. When you use a tangential view with the washer, you can see the washer land onto the lateral iliac cortical bone that prevents it from intruding. And when you intrude, you lose your fixation. So I'm, I'm not a fan of the technique of the left ramus screw nor the iliosacral screw. And for this left screw, left uh, ramus screw, is it, it's kind of, I don't know if you can see my mouse, but it, would you have wanted to start that screw somewhere around here? Yeah, you put it in the bone. Yeah. Yes. It it yes. Yes. The answer to your question is yes. <laughs> it, it needs to be in the bone. Right. Perfect. And yeah. and know, I. Good. Yeah. That's okay. I, I think I think I've said enough. No. No. <laughs> go for it. We, we, I'm, you know, we're learning. We're learning just you know from everything so if you, you're saying. So if you know the osseous, so if you know the osseous fixation pathways, when you see the inlet view uh, in the middle there. That iliosacral screw is fairly posterior in the sacral body, don't you see? It's yeah, certainly right. not in the it's not in the anterior part of the sacral. Yeah, okay. And then right. if you look on the outlet, you see it's pretty much in the middle of the body. And just right. if you know where the tunnel, where the tunnel of S1 is, that screw is pretty darn close to the tunnel of S1. So that would have been a much screw to bring it anteriorly about a centimeter and a half. Right, and that nerve that root would have is, made your screws safe. Right, the nerve root is right, posterior and cranial to that uh, that screw. If it's if it's truly outside of the tunnel, I, I like where you're so drawing. Ideally. It's a little that's a yeah, little, that's a little extreme. That's a little extreme. <laughs> that's a little too it's somewhere between where you're doing where it is. The middle, somewhere the between where they are and where you are. <laughs> All right, uh, enter third would have been smarter. Perfect. And I think we, we may have time to go through maybe one more uh, of these cases and kind of wrap up here. But these are, uh, oh man, I, I ruined it. But this is the image. That that's okay. That's just, that's just, that's just a crescent iliac fracture. And so 
you can go at this any way you want to. You can do a posterior ORIF for the iliac fracture uh, with or without sacroiliac fixation. You can do an anterior ORF of the SI joint uh, with or without iliosacral screws and or lag screws into the posterior iliac piece, or you can do a manipulative reduction and uh, do this percutaneously. So it, it really depends on um, what kind of reduction you can get. That iliac fracture on the surface rendered model seems to be incomplete cranially, and sometimes that's just the smoothing algorithm of the program but if it's incomplete that's going to be a tough reduction to get closed because incomplete fractures are often not flexible they're 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 bent like a green stick fracture and and they're reluctant to be reduced without osteotomizing that area yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think for this one they just they reduced and, and put you know a couple of these uh a couple of these screws through and kind of held that in place through that little through that path. So that's just that's just direct iliac fixation, which is fine. Uh, can you go back one click? Um, sure. I had a I had a patient's dad one time. I was trying. She was sixteen, and I was trying to convince him that I needed to do an ORIF of the SI joint from the front like this. And I was trying to explain to him that I needed to correct that deformity, and then I put a screw right through that. You know the. And he said, so he measured it. He had me measure. He says, so you mean to tell me that if you make that eight millimeters better and you still are going to put a screw right through the cartilage that you're trying to save, that's how you're going to fix it. You're going to, you're going to literally put a screw right through the cartilage that you're telling me you're going to save and you make it eight millimeters better. That's going to guarantee she'll have a better outcome. And I said, well, no. And he said, well, then I don't want the open reduction for her. There's no reason to do that. And yeah. so um, sometimes patients can teach you things that you don't think about. We get absorbed and you get really wrapped up into getting these reductions. And then they just want to know if that's going to make them a whole lot better or not. Yeah. And it's just, it was just an interesting thought. No, no, that's, that's great. Yeah. That's a good point. And let's see, I think that, that may be about it. I don't know if we have another cool case here. Um, Dr. Rao, you want to, you want to tackle this one or? That's just a comminuted iliac fracture, and that almost always needs an ORIF. And you see it goes through the greater sciatic notch on the left side. And so you want to really pay attention on the CT scan um, to make sure that the superior gluteal, you probably ought to get in the habit of looking at the contrast CTs that you get so you know where the superior gluteal is. This would be, you want to look at the soft tissue windows, make sure there's not huge hematomas and things like that. And then at least have a plan so that when you manipulate this ilium and reduce it, if you start having a leader of blood loss in the next minute and a half, you know what you're going to do for that because that can happen. That happened to me about a month and a half, uh, six weeks ago. So we were reducing an iliac fracture. And when we reduced it, I mean, it was a very sim simple reduction maneuver. It was an unstable fracture. And then literally he lost a liter of blood probably in a minute and a half. So I, I, I couldn't pack the wound fast enough. I was using the cell saver, but uh, just because you're saving a bunch of blood doesn't mean it's going to be a good thing. But I would just tell you that's a common iliac fracture. Uh, beware of the superior gluteal if you're going to do the surgery. And then we learned in the lab a long time ago that you can fix these with whatever you want to fix them. But you should fix the crest component and the brim component because that will give you the strongest fixation construct in the lab. And I think that makes a lot of sense. So it doesn't matter if you use screws from the AIIS to the posterior ilium with a plate on the crest or use a plate on the pelvic rim with screws in the crest or use screws in the crest with a screw from the AIIS to the posterior ilium or 
you use plates and plates, it doesn't really matter. Whatever it is you use, just make sure you fix the crest component and the pelvic brim component to optimize the fixation construct strength. Perfect. Um, well, I, I think that was great. I think this was a, a good episode. We talked about, you know, a little bit about the history behind, you know. Uh, Before you summarize, show me what they did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> can't leave oh, them hanging. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I can't do that. This is what they did. They, um, that looks good. This is, this yeah. is fine. They, they, but again, three, just remember three, five screws bend. And if you look at that obturator oblique, I realize it's not an outlet, but that, that Ramus screw looks pretty dadgum close to the joint. Just doesn't have to be yeah. that close, but good enough. Okay. You can summarize. Thank you. <laughs> no, no, I didn't want to leave you hanging there. I didn't realize that, but um, no, I, I thought, I think it was a good, a good talk. Um, you know, we talked about the, uh, you know, kind of some of the history behind, you know, uh, pelvic fractures and, and how they're treated. Talked about a little bit about the, you know, the principles of, um, of, of ring fixation. And we kind of went through a couple of cases, talked about the pathways. I, I thought it was a good, uh, a good talk. Before we wrap up, is there anything that, you know, somebody listening to this, maybe a junior resident, senior resident, or somebody going, you know, about to start a trauma fellowship, anything that you would, you know, parting words that you would like them to know about when you know regarding looking in and fixing these uh these pelvic fractures yeah i would just say this is the drip of the tip of the iceberg of knowledge that we've just gone over i mean we've just really literally scratched the surface of a very big tree of, of information and then i i think the most important thing for people that are trying to learn things is to find someone who really knows it and then let them help you learn it and that may be just going over incessant care cases, that may be just doing operations, that may be directing your reading or a combination of all of those things, but find someone who cares ab about you learning it and then make sure you put in the work to learn so that when you look at these films, what's alarming me will alarm you. Right. Yes, sir. Well, Dr. Rao, as well as Dr. Hawkins, uh, definitely appreciate you being on the podcast. And at the end of our podcast, we always, you know, give our guests a, a time to shout out if you have any social media and Twitter, uh, Twitter pages or anything that you want people to follow you on and, you know, they can kind of, you know, just look in and, and keep in contact or, or anything that you want to, you know, share with the listeners. Yeah, I have uh, Twitter and Instagram accounts. I don't do teaching on Instagram. I just do the teaching on Twitter. That's about all I do is uh, just put cases up. And if you want to see an interesting symphysis and in SI joint with a closed reduction screw, uh, you can just look at the one that I put up last week at, uh, is a good example of some of the things we talked about tonight. Yeah, yeah, I actually follow your uh, your Twitter page and you know there's always some cool cool cases on there so I will reiterate that to anybody that is listening to uh, this episode go definitely follow uh, Dr. Route on the Twitter. Uh, well, without further ado, again, thank you so much, Dr. Rout, for being a guest on the podcast. Listeners, thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nellie Ortho Podcast. And please hit the, that subscribe button, and we will see you all next week. <laughs>